This episode of the 3D Insights podcast is brought to you by SEMI, the leading microelectronics industry association with programs that help its members grow their business and address top challenges worldwide. With a global focus on advocacy, the microelectronics supply chain, sustainability, and workforce development, SEMI works with industry leaders to align goals, share best practices, and accelerate progress. Learn more at SEMI.org. I'm Francoise Von Trapp, and this is the 3D Insights Podcast. So my next guest here at ISS is Paul Triolo. He just delivered a presentation on the challenges of industrial policies, export controls, and supply chain perturbations. So welcome to the podcast, Paul. Great to be here. This is a hot topic. It's a really, <laughs> really big mouthful. It is. Do you want to just break that down a little bit, what you mean by the title? Yeah, I, it was just an attempt to frame what is the bigger problem of, of governments and geopolitics uh, becoming such a key part of the direction of development of the semiconductor industry over the last particularly two to three years. Um, and there's lots of different ways to slice it, but I thought that was a good way to frame the problem that companies, all companies in this, in this uh, very dynamic sector face, many of whom we work with. And we are Albright Stonebridge. We are Albright Stonebridge Group. We are a political risk consultancy um, in Washington, D.C., okay. established by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. We're commercial diplomats, so we we help companies think through strategic planning, looking ahead, dealing with geopolitics and conflicts around the world and regulatory issues. I see. Okay. That is so, really cool. Yeah. That sounds like an interesting job. So I'm on the road a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, I put on 250,000 miles on United uh, just before the pandemic. So it was very difficult. Did you get to keep all your miles? I did. They, they, they grandfathered in global services for two years, which was really nice. That's really nice. Because nobody was traveling. Right. Exactly. Um, so let's dive into what's going on here today. Why is it critical for semiconductor leaders to understand the geopolitical climate um, when they're developing their strategy? Well, the way I've, I've tried to frame it in the talk today, and I usually talk about it, there's two different major sort of forces that are now at play in the industry, which the industry didn't face even two to three years ago. One is industrial policy, governments wanting to intervene and concerned about you know, their own uh, domestic capacity to build semiconductors. Because guess what? Every Somebody woke up in 20, after the global chip shortage, right, right which right. affected automobile companies and medical device companies, um, governments woke up to the fact that they didn't control or their, their countries didn't have much control over supply chains for critical industries. Right. Um, and so governments now want to be involved in sort of, in, and, and it's really interference, if you will, in what has been a very market-driven uh, industry. Um, they want to say, hey, we, we want to have lots of capacity in our own country and we want to incentivize that. It's good for companies, but it may be tricky for the overall industry to navigate because the industry has typically been driven by um, market forces. And then the other issue is technology control. Both of these come out of what I dubbed at one point the U.S.-China technology cold war, um, which began really in the Trump administration and has continued into the Biden administration. But this is really the struggle over um, who's going to dominate or be most influential in the technologies of the future, which includes semiconductors and, and key technologies built on semiconductors like artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, it is kind of interesting that the um, governments, especially the U.S. government, kind of just woke up right. to the fact, and now they want to be involved, and I feel like they're really slowing things down. Well, the problem is they've just the governments, not just a, not just in the U.S., but now in Japan and mm-hmm. Korea and, and the EU. Um, Taiwan has been doing this for a long time. <laughs> That's why some of the conversations are successful. But yeah, they woke up. And the problem is, though, they're doing it at a time when, you know, building, for example, an advanced fab is extremely complicated and expensive um, and requires a lot of knowledge um, in terms of, of how to structure supply chain. So if you're trying to re- Onshore, for example, as the U.S. is trying to do advanced manufacturing, you know, U.S. hasn't done that for years. And so there's lots of pieces of the puzzle there to put together. Um, And it's also reversing the market trend and the costs, right? So there there were a reason that that Taiwan and South Korea, and there were reasons both economic and sort of technological and and cultural that led to those countries dominating and and for some of the offshoring of of advanced manufacturing in some of these places like the Europe and the US. So now you're trying to reverse that through government intervention. And that can, that's, that's tricky. It has to be done very carefully, or you risk disrupting these supply chains and and causing a lot of what I would call collateral damage in the process. Mm -hmm. So that is what you meant by geopolitics disrupting a $5 trillion technology sector, which isn't just semiconductor, because semiconductor is not $5 trillion. We're not even $3 trillion. No, we're talking about like the whole ICT sector. I mean, all the lots of, you can, depending on what you include in there, all the derivative industries built on top of it, right? Right, right. EVs and, and, uh, you know, microelectronics and consumer electronics, et cetera, et cetera. That's a huge global industry. Right. You know, heretofore, it's been, it's been driven by and large, by by market forces, governments do subsidize do, do provide subsidies in some areas, but it's, it hasn't been the, the scale of that of the, right. of the of the change in the last two to three years is pretty striking. Yeah, I feel like Europe has always been somewhat involved. Just the specific, not the EU necessarily, but you know, Germany, France, they always had a lot of involvement in um, financial support of technology development through their research institutes. Yes. Yes, the EU and you know um, organizations like IMEC in mm-hmm. in, uh, in Belgium and CET Leta in France mm-hmm. and Fraunhofer in Germany. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, those are those are like really world class R and D. That's sort of supporting long term R and D and these key technologies. It's another thing to then want to jump in and and begin subsidizing um, the development of advanced fabs. It's a different sort of problem right. set. And again, in Taiwan, one sort of criticism of, of, of people who say, well, that maybe that's not a good idea, is Taiwan has been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's in a, within a very specific context that they're doing that. Um, and yes, that has contributed to, but has not been crucial, for example, to the dominance of TSMC and advanced um, node foundry capacity, which is like 90%, right? That was a result of their business model and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but government sort of all trying to jump in and boost the, their onshore capacity is a very new phenomenon in, in the industry. So you talked about U.S. adopting a carrots and sticks mm-hmm. approach to semiconductors. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, well, the carrots are... You know, it, it, there's a broad agreement that that the U.S. should do more in, mm-hmm. in advanced manufacturing, just because it's um, you know the U- U.S. companies dominate in certain key areas like semiconductor design, companies like Nvidia and Qualcomm. But manufacturing has been somewhat neglected, so it, it does make sense at one level to to incentivize that's the carrot, you know, incentivize mm-hmm. more companies to build more pieces of the, of the supply chain here. The problem is that that's coming at a time when the U.S. is also trying to control access to technology and to markets, uh, and so those, those companies that have have expanded globally, for example 
example, have all done that on the basis of having access to global markets. Mm -hmm. And for example, China is, mm -hmm. is a good example where, so some of the leading U.S. design companies um, and manufacturing companies like Intel derive a huge amount of their revenue from access to the China market. So the problem is at the same time as the U.S. government and other governments want to incentivize companies to build more capacity in their domestic markets, uh, the U.S. and in some cases allies are also cutting off access to, to a key market like China to those same companies. Um, and so that's that approach is very produces some of this collateral damage that I mentioned. Right, right. Yeah, yeah and also we talked about how region siloing mm -hmm. and trying to build their own ecosystem is going to cause um, an oversupply. Well, yeah, it's going to cause a couple of different things. Exactly. If, if there's no coordination, it's hard enough to do industrial policy domestically mm -hmm. in countries that don't haven't done it for a long time, have a lot of challenges. But yeah, here now we're talking multiple jurisdictions that are trying to do similar things. And if there's no coordination, you, you run the risk of oversupply, overcapacity. You also run the risk that um, you're going to make supply the supply chain much more complicated because mm -hmm. if each country wants to build an advanced node fab, for example, it's not just the fab. They, have, they come with very complicated supply chains. So how much of those supply chains mm -hmm. should move, um, for example? And you know the companies involved then have to decide, is, is there enough volume, for example, um, uh, right. of, of manufacturing in a particular location to justify building a whole different uh, you know, piece of the supply chain there? Right. And all of these places, you know, all of these investments for the manufacturers, for instance, onshore in the U.S., we've got TSMC building mm -hmm. in Arizona. We get um, Intel building, but most of the advanced packaging is still going to be offshore. So right. they're going to be building these devices here, and they're still going to be shipping them offshore to be packaged. Exactly. Ex yeah, except for Amcor did just announce a major OSAT also in Arizona for the first right. time. One of that volume is going to be on U.S. soil. Most of it's probably going to be occupied by Apple. Right. Uh, it depends on what you're talking about. In the, on the, you know, so for example, you used a good example of um, of the Phoenix production for TSMC. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of that production is going to be for things like advanced GPUs, for mm -hmm. example, for NVIDIA and mm -hmm. also uh, advanced um, chips for Apple, you know, ASICs mm -hmm. that, that um, TSMC does. But for example, GPUs right now, all of the, the packaging is very complicated. And TSMC actually does its own packaging right. um, in Taiwan and all the capacities in Taiwan. And it's, it's another huge investment that TSMC has to make. Uh, fab 6, for example, in, in uh, Tainan is a big, you know, it, it's a huge fab and it takes a lot of Lots of suppliers, lots of complicated supply chains. So to build something like that in the U.S., for example, you know, there would have to be the, the volume of, of manufacturing there. And, right. And, you know, in Taiwan, there's the critical mass of, and it makes sense to do that. So, yes, those, a lot of those wafers that are, once they're fabricated in, in TSMC in Arizona, are going to be shipped back to Taiwan for packaging and testing. Right. right. Mm -hmm. So speaking of Taiwan, mm -hmm. then there's the whole China-Taiwan thing. <laughs> so what happens if China invades Taiwan? <laughs> yeah, what a, a easy question. The broader discussion here around all these things we've been talking about is the backdrop is U.S.-China relations deteriorating. Right. And really the onshoring for both the U.S. and Europe and Japan is about Taiwan, right? So if, for example, in Japan, the, the, the Japanese government talks about this as a business continuity plan. We better get some onshore manufacturing here because if something happens to Taiwan, um, that would be really bad. So it's a complicated issue. That China, will China invade Taiwan? Um, the, 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 the key thing to remember, though, is it's just over the last two years, the issue of talking about publicly 
uh, the potential for conflict over Taiwan has gone way up. And when I first was looking at this industry five years ago, nobody was talking about the potential for for an invasion of uh, of Taiwan to happen because U.S.-China relations were pretty good at that okay. point, and nobody was talking about it. Now you can't open the paper without reading a story. Just today, there was a story mm -hmm. about you know a, a military conflict over Taiwan would cost the global economy ten trillion dollars. It's the, scary. Ten percent of the of the of global GDP, and it's probably more than that or worse right. than that. So it would all depend, of course on many factors. It would depend on what triggered the event. Um, uh, right now, for example, people don't think that the Chinese government and Xi Jinping have a timetable to, to unify with Taiwan. Really, the Chinese calculus now is driven by external factors, how much they think the U.S. is supporting Taiwan in ways that would preclude eventual peaceful unification. So the Chinese government's preference is peaceful unification. But they're looking at a very complicated geopolitical situation in Asia where the U.S. is building alliances with other countries and arming Taiwan for example, providing arms sales. Um, and so China believes that the U.S., for example, is hollowing out the one China policy that the U.S. agreed to um, in, in a series of communiques in the 70s. Um, and so basically the problem is that the underpinning of the th complicated three-year relationship is kind of out of date, mostly because of semiconductors and, and China's rise as a military power and Taiwan's transformation into a, into a functioning democracy. And so in the ways the, the pillars of, that support 50 years of peaceful uh, existence and supported the development of that semiconductor industry in Taiwan you know, need to be rethought going forward to avoid conflict. So it's tricky, though. There could be an accident. So just uh, recently, for example, after the Pelosi visit, that you may remember, um, in August of 2022, mm -hmm. the Chinese stepped up military uh, exercises and, and flew, you know, shot missiles over Taiwan, right? And they're flying aircraft into, every day into the Taiwan Strait across the, the notional median line. So right now, for example, the potential for just an accident to mm -hmm. cause a conflict or to, to, you know, to lead to something bad is, is high. And then the Chinese... Um, again, could could change the status quo in response to U.S. actions or U.S. policies, um, seizing offshore islands and sort of forcing the U.S. to react. So right now, I would say it's, it, the probability is still low but growing, but the impact is huge, the potential impact, particularly of any kind of a kinetic exchange, because those fabs are, are, are so critical. And if that, if a conflict led, for example, to engineers and, you know, people fleeing Taiwan. So you'd have a dispersal of this incredible amount of, you know, knowledge and, and capability. And it'd be really hard to recreate that anywhere mm -hmm. else in the world. Well, not to mention, and mm -hmm. I, th I don't think it benefits mm -hmm. China to do anything destructive that would, I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure there for the semiconductor industry that... But ironically, though, the problem is U.S. export controls are incentivizing China to be much more independent in, mm -hmm. its, in its own semiconductor industry. Right. And it's sent to, in a sense to make it less dependent mm -hmm. on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And so when you read the Chinese media, for example, the Chinese uh, semiconductor media, there are these people who are saying, hey, you know, we, once we develop this latest DUV or EUV tool, we won't need Taiwan anymore, right? And that's, I think, also dangerous because, yes, currently... The, the cost to China of any kind of a conflict or damage to Taiwan would, would be would be huge. So mm -hmm. part of that $10 trillion would, would be hit to China because China, many U.S. companies and other foreign companies are manufacturing in China using semiconductors that come from Taiwan. And so a lot of China's exports, for example, that are Chinese exports, are really U.S. companies manufacturing uh, co uh, components in laptops and computers in China using components from Taiwan and then shipping them you mm -hmm. know, globally. So China is this huge manufacturing platform for a mm -hmm. whole bunch of things, EVs, and, and they all use semiconductors and they all, a lot of them come from Taiwan. It's really interconnected. 
you know, the whole, the, the, right. the semiconductor industry, I've always thought about this, is it's such a global collaborative. And it needs to remain a global collaborative to be successful. Absolutely. I think people don't appreciate just how global it is. I mean, there are these concentrations of capabilities in places like Taiwan mm -hmm. for foundry capacity and in South Korea for, for memory. But yes, overall, there are many companies in many countries that are, are critical pieces of the supply chain, materials mm -hmm. and tools mm -hmm. and, and, you know, all sorts of things. And so no one country has ever, you know, tried to do all of it because there's so many sort of critical choke point technologies that, that just doesn't make sense for mm -hmm. one country to try to encourage its companies to do. So yes, it's, and it's also R&D heavy. So it's very R&D heavy and very globalized. And so that's one of the problems when you start, when governments start intervening, both on the sort of carrots and stick side, mm -hmm. um, it makes it really difficult because companies who have been used to sort of um, that level of, of global access and collaboration are now forced to sort of pick and choose sides. And no, right. no, nobody wants to do that in the industry, really. Right. One area we wanted to talk about that we haven't mentioned yet in, in this conversation is India. Ah, mm -hmm. India is just starting to build its... Well, they've been trying. They've been trying. They've been trying for a long time, for a long right? Time, yeah. mm -hmm. um, Ajima Nocha from Semi is actually in India right now to support some right. of the planning right. there, right? Um, so will building a sustainable semiconductor ecosystem in India alleviate the pressures we're feeling from China? Well, not in the near term. So India has sort of long been this hope of, of a sort of alternative manufacturing mm -hmm. hub, if you will. The problem is, look, it took China 20 years to build a sophisticated export-oriented manufacturing hub with really good infrastructure, high-speed rail and port facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And India, you know, it just doesn't have that infrastructure, right? right? So it's not, it's it's a couple of different things. It's an infrastructure problem, water, clean water, and and, and reliable power for semiconductor manufacturing. Um, these are all critical. And then there's sort of the business, ease of doing business. Mm -hmm. So China is a national, has national policies. Once you're in China doing advanced manufacturing, it's relatively easy um, to, to do business and expand within mm -hmm. China. India is like 27 different countries, right? I mean, all the different provinces, there's different languages, um, different religions. So it's a very complicated place to do business. Mm -hmm. And the Indian government hasn't helped in the sense of having very difficult um, tax policies and customs policies. You know, everybody would like to have India as an alternative, but it just isn't quite there yet in mm -hmm. terms of infrastructure and sort of ease of doing business. But because there's so much concern about China, now uh, in, in India has a government under Prime Minister Modi that looks like it'll be in place for a while. It mm -hmm. won't change. Mm -hmm. It won't sort of pull the rug out from other foreign companies. So now there's more interest. But companies are sort of waiting and seeing what big players are going to go in there. And you also have the problem of who's going to be the, the customers, right? So China also is a huge consumer of right. a lot of these goods. And India is still... Um, you know, it's not clear like who who would who would buy all the all the semiconductors you're going to make in India, and then finally, a lot of Chinese companies um, are also going to other places, going into other markets mm -hmm. in, in, in Vietnam and, and Malaysia and other places. So, for example, Apple wants to move some of its production into to India of the of the iPhone, and they then, but they're working with Foxconn, which mm -hmm. they're also working with in China. But in India, a lot of their suppliers are Chinese companies like Luxshare and you know okay. really big big players, and so they also are. Would move are moving to India to support Apple's manufacturing effort in India. So, so the dependence on China is a little more complicated because as these other places um, 
um, come online. Mexico is a good example, too, where Chinese companies are expanding in Mexico. You know, it's not like dependence on China doesn't necessarily go down um, depending on what product you're talking about. Right. Right. And none of these things that we talk about ever happen overnight. Right. Right. I mean, kind of think back to the answer for these, the chip shortage seemed to be, oh, let's add capacity. But that wasn't the answer at the time because adding capacity takes years. Right. And, and it, that was right. the, at the time, oh, we're going to build these fabs, but that's not going to solve the problems that we have right now. Right. And we did get to that. But now as a result, we're in an oversupply. Right. And it turned out that the, the chip shortage, a lot of it was more related to bad supply chain management mm-hmm. too, for example, by, mm-hmm. um, by the automakers mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Detroit mm-hmm. who have admitted that. And then other th- crazy things like a fire and, and, you know, the fire right. in Texas and a freeze in Japan, um, or maybe the other way around freeze in Texas, fire in Japan. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of other issues around that that happened, but yeah, now the problem is still, you know, the industry is very cyclical. And mm-hmm. so, and again, that gets back to the whole issue of government intervention, which is that, you know, it's tricky enough to manage those, that, that cyclical nature of the industry. But then if you add on the layer of mm-hmm. decisions being made that may not be driven by, you know, like the clear commercial yeah. needs, you have a, yeah. a recipe for, you know. It is. That's why mischief. there's a big question mark on the theme of t- mm-hmm. this year's, you know, ready, set, ramp. It's not Ready, Set, Ramp. It's Ready, Set, Ramp. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. If people want to tap into you outside of ISS, Mm -hmm. how can they find you? What do you do for them? I do a lot of different things. Um, I have a Twitter feed that's very popular. People, I run into people at conferences and they say, I love your Twitter feed. It's at PST Asia Tech. Um, and so you can you can certainly subscribe to my Twitter feed. Um, and in that, I try to curate and, and comment on things that are in this space. Um, I cover, you know, semiconductors. I also do a lot of uh, work on AI because um, we work with a lot of AI clients. Mm-hmm. So it's a broader global sort of view, but a lot of focus on, on semis. And you're a consulting China. firm. Right. And I'm with Albert Stonebridge. So we do, on our website, albertstonebridge.com, we do publish white papers and things that we do um, that we, we that maybe we provide our clients first and then we will put out a white paper on the on the website to and I also publish in uh, the wire China and I'm frequently quoted in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times on these issues um, okay. so I'm, I'm out there but if you follow my Twitter feed it, and, and LinkedIn you know LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn okay. too, those kind of places. You great can and it. I can put a connect to link to you on LinkedIn sure absolutely great. well thanks so much it's been a pleasure talking with you what a pleasure Next week on the 3D Insights podcast, Semi Europe's Leith Altimime talks about the upcoming ISS Europe, which takes place March 7th and 8th in Vienna, Austria. If you're thinking about attending, you won't want to miss this episode. If you're not sure if you should attend, this episode will convince you. There's lots more to come, so tune in next time to the 3D Insights podcast. The 3D Insights podcast is a production of 3D Insights, LLC.